Jesus. And with that said, let's pray and we're going to dive right in. Father, we do thank you for the amazing worship that we've had so far, uh, songs that we're familiar with, a couple that are newer, and Lord, but all with this theme of hope. And God, if I don't miss my guess, there are some here today that desperately, desperately, desperately need hope. And Lord, we're not even sure what hope is, let alone how to find it. So God, help us to, to latch onto that today. May your word speak very truthfully and clearly to us, and may we uh, truly be people who are not without hope. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So here's why hope is so important. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 is a passage that many of you are familiar with. It says this, it says, but now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. And because love is the greatest, we talk about it all the time. You ever notice that? I mean, you, you can't watch a Hallmark special on TV or we have Valentine's Day. You listen to even country songs, which I like, and they're all, everybody talks about love. And it's even vogue today to talk about faith, not just in church, but even in culture at large today. I hear people say, I'm a man of faith, or I'm a woman of faith, or I'm a person of faith. And so, you know, we get that love and faith are important and that these three remain. But the reality is, is that, or these two remain, that God said there are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love. And I don't hear us talk as much about hope. Uh, about eight years ago when Obama was running for office, he wrote a book called The Audacity of Hope. And, and, and that was about the last I ever heard anybody talk about hope <laughs> was that long ago. Uh, we use the word in our daily language, but even when we use the word hope in our daily language, it belies the fact, at least in American culture, that we really don't know what hope is. Because the way that we use it today, as you're going to see in a second here, is not how the Bible uses it at all. Now think about the way that we use the word hope today. We say things like this, I hope it doesn't rain today. Like in Arizona, that's an easy one, right? <laughs> Or I hope the Cardinals win today. I hope that my kids or my grandkids turn out okay. I hope that I don't get sick this winter. Think about how we use the word hope today. We use it as a word to describe what might or might not come, right? And we're hoping by the very nature of it that what we want to come will come. But we use the word as kind of a glorified wish, a calculated long shot, something that we hope by the very definition of it happens, but we're not really sure. That's how the word hope is used by culture at large today. And what we're going to see today is that biblical hope is much different than that, that the hope that the Bible talks about, it calls a sure hope. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The kind of hope in which you're not like wishful thinking, but it's the kind of hope that actually is going to be an anchor that we attach our lifeboat to in life. A very different perspective on hope, one I think that you will like. And so how would you define hope? If it's, not a, if it's not a wish fulfillment, if it's not a vague expectation, how would you define hope? This is why my wife likes this sermon so much. The second that I said to her, I think I'm going to do the hope message, we were in our bathroom together. Don't picture that. We're in the bathroom getting ready for the day. And Kim looked at me and she said this. Let's see the, the definition. She said, hope, it's the ability to see beyond your present circumstances to that which is unseen. She remembers that from years ago when her and I used to talk about the formation of this message that I've now given so many times that hope is the ability to see 
beyond your present circumstances to that which is unseen. What do we mean by that? There is a story in the Bible that very clearly illustrates this definition. It's a story that some of you might be familiar with. It's the story of Abraham. Let's familiarize ourselves once again with it. Abraham, as some of you know, lived thousands of years ago during Old Testament times. And Abraham was called by God at the age of 75 to leave his hometown of Haran to inherit a much better and new nation that he would become the founder and father of, a nation very, very far away. So what a great challenge before Abraham. God appeared to Abraham, he's 75 years old, and he says, pack up all your family, all your possessions, and head out to the land of Canaan. And you're gonna become the father and the founder of a brand new nation. And there's only one problem, is that when Abraham got to this new nation, after traveling hundreds if not thousands of miles away from Haran, uh, he found that this nation was already inhabited by a people known as the Canaanites. So, so it would almost be like if God were to call a young guy from Chagrin Falls, Ohio, to come to the southwest to be a pastor, and say for the sake of this illustration that God said, Jamie, you know, leave Chagrin Falls, Ohio, and go out to Scottsdale, and God didn't say this, but what if God had said, you will become the father and the founder of an entirely new nation out in Scottsdale, and I get off the plane here in Scottsdale, and there's 230,000 people already living here. That would be problematic. If God said that I'm going to be the founder of something new and the father, which means my offspring are going to be the ones to inhabit this new place, and there's already people there, that's problematic. And to boot, Abraham had no resources to take over this vast country. So for the next 25 years, Abraham became a desert wanderer, waiting for God to do something to fulfill his promises. And during these 25 years, and you can read about it on your own from Genesis 12 to 19, during these 25 years, uh, the promise for Abraham to be the founder and father of a new nation, Abraham knew was true, but there were two major roadblocks in his way. Uh, the first, as we've already talked about, is how can you be a founder of a nation or a land that's already inhabited? But even worse, the second problem was Abraham wondered, how can God make me the father of a new nation when my wife is barren, Sarah couldn't have any kids, and after the 25 years of wandering, Abraham was almost 100 years old and Sarah was how old? Does anybody remember? 90. Now again, just so we latch on to this, I looked this up years ago when I was doing research for this message. At that time, the Guinness World Book of Record for the oldest gal to ever give a natural birth was the age 56. That still holds true today. I looked it up yesterday. The oldest woman ever to give birth on record, because they don't believe the Bible, obviously, is 56 years old. And the oldest person to ever give birth with in vitro, so not naturally, is 70 years old, even with all of our modern technology. So latch on to that. Abraham's 100 years old, Sarah is 90, and God says, you're going to have a kid, and through your offspring, a new nation, the nation Israel, will be born. And every time Abraham thought of these two roadblocks, like land filled by people already, we are getting old and can't have kids, God gave the same answer. God said, don't worry trust me. God tends to say that a lot. You ever notice that? 
Even in the midst of surmountable, insurmountable odds, God says to us, as he said to Abraham, trust me. And so Abraham was in a really difficult spot. I mean, everything started out well, but now it seemed like there's no way that this can come to fruition. Some of you are in the same place. Some of you are in a job that you hate. Some of you are in a difficult marriage. Some of your kids or even grandkids aren't turning out all that great. Maybe your retirement dreams are dashed. Maybe your health is going downhill. Maybe even your spiritual walk is struggling. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book years ago called Spiritual Depression. I've latched on to that phrase over the years for me because there's times where even in my spirit, I'm dealing with significant depression. Here's the point. We can relate to Abraham. We know what it's like to wander in the desert, have all these promises from God, and yet we have no idea. In fact, outside of a miracle, these promises don't seem like they're going to come to fruition. And so how do we deal with that? What do you do when life is like that? Here's what Abraham did. I want to read Romans 4 verse 18 to you. I'm going to put it up here on the screen. I put the relevant parts in yellow. Because Romans 4.18 is reflecting back thousands of years earlier on Abraham's life from Genesis 12 through 19. And Paul the Apostle, inspired by the Spirit, says this. He says, in hope, against hope, Abraham believed in order that he might become the father of many nations. I, I love that phrase in the yellow, in hope, against hope, he believed. Uh, the NIV says it this way, in hope, against all hope, Abraham believed. In other words, he kept on, he hung in there, he maintained his faith. As we've seen, against opposing odds, Abraham was still able to hope in God, and the very nature of hope, are you catching this, guys, allowed him to believe. See, that's why faith, hope, and love go together, because hope allows you to have faith, and faith expresses itself, as the Bible says, in love. And because Abraham did hope against all the odds, against all odds, he hoped God did come through. Eventually, you guys, most, most of you know the story, after wandering in the desert for 25 years, <laughs> A 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman became pregnant, and God gave them a child. And anybody remember what they called him? Abraham, Isaac, the three patriarchs of the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Isaac in the Hebrew means what? Laughter. <laughs> because when Sarah first heard about the promise that she was going to get pregnant, she laughed at God's promise, which is never a good thing to do. So Abraham decided to name this kid Laughter as a living reminder that God is going to do what God said he's going to do. And Abraham never lost hope. Now, the question I want you and I to wrestle with is how? How could Abraham continue to believe God even in the midst of all the opposing factors, a decaying body, years with no results, no refuge or home, a land inhabited already by a more numerous and powerful people? How in the world did he maintain his hope? Have you ever thought about that? Was he just a super spiritual guy that you and I aren't? I don't think so. I don't think that's the way God wants us to read the story or the Bible. No, the reason that Abraham was able to maintain hope goes back to the definition that my dear wife loves so well. And that's that Abraham had this, the ability to see beyond his present circumstances to that, or as we're going to see here in a minute here, him who is unseen. 
Now, let's break down this definition into two bite-sized chunks just so that we're very clear. First, focus on the first part of that definition of hope. It's the ability to see beyond your present circumstances. And let's not miss the profundity here. Hope is the ability to see beyond the here and now. It's the ability to not get mired into only obsessively focusing on what's right in front of you, which is usually problematic, right? Hope, by its very nature, is able to lift your sights beyond all the problems and crud that's in front of you and look elsewhere. And we haven't even talked about where you're looking yet. Don't think that. Focus just on the first part of this. Hope is able to look beyond. And again, it's uncanny. When you look at the story of Abraham, this is precisely what he did. I mean, for 25 years, he could have gotten so focused on these two problems in front of him, a nation already inhabited and we have no kids, but he didn't. He maintained his hope, he maintained his perspective on the promises of God, but I would submit to you the only way he was able to do that was to not get focused on all the stuff in front of him. And again, if you read it on your own later, I really encourage you to do that. It's amazing all the problems that happened to Abraham during these 25 years. I mean, some of you know the stories. During these 25 years, he dealt with kings who wanted to steal his wife. Any of you have that happen to you lately? I haven't. He found himself in the middle of a small war between nations he was visiting. He had to deal with corrupt nations like Sodom and Gomorrah. He experienced a harsh famine in the land. And then even some of his relatives were taken into captivity. Think Lot and his wife. And yet the remarkable thing is that in the midst of all of the drama, he didn't get stuck. And don't get me wrong, it's not like he read Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking. I mean, it wasn't like he was just some Pollyanna, ignore my problems type of person. That's not the sense we get at all. Abraham did not live in denial. He knew that things were dire. He just also knew how to simply look beyond them. And that's the point before we move on, guys. you got to see this. So as long as you're, as long as you're uh, choosing to focus only on the here and now, which is so easy to do in the flesh, you will never, ever have hope. I, um, this year, been just my kids, uh, my kids have finally all left, and it's been joyous for us. They're 26, uh, 24, and 22, and we love our kids, but this idea of, you know, I don't mean to step on any toes, but living with, you know, your, your, your adult children living with you, unless they've really hit hard times, is, is for the birds and Kim's and mine eyes. So we've really beat into them that uh, you're not welcome here, and you need to find your own house. And so my girls have their own condos, and Paul's in graduate school at ASU, and your tax dollars at work, and so that's another story, but uh, he's getting a good education. And, and I've been reminded, as all the kids are gone this year, of how much I do miss them and the precious times that we've had over the years. Uh, one of the things that Kim and I loved was when they were really, really young. We just were looking forward to being grandparents. We got to find godly men for our girls first, but we were, uh, were looking forward to being grandparents. And I can remember um, one of the things that, that was always just kind of um, fun and dramatic when our kids were young is all the learning curves that they have. Do you ever watch a toddler when they're learning how to walk, when they're learning how to eat, when they're learning how to um, eventually tie their shoes, when they're learning how to work the TV or the VCR? I mean, everything's a learning curve for little ones. 
And, and Kim and I just, just used to smile and laugh at it. Sometimes it was very dramatic. I can remember uh, one day, this is a true story, we're in our little house in Harper Woods, Michigan, and I heard this blood-curling scream from the next room. And I thought maybe, you know, the dog was biting one of the kids or something. And so I, I ran in, and, and my oldest daughter, Hannah, was uh, sitting on the ground with her legs crossed, and, and, and she had her shoe in front of her, and her shoe was untied. She's about three years old. And uh, she, she's looking down at this shoe, and she's just tears pouring down her face. She's exasperated. She's frustrated. And she says, I can't tie my shoe. And I'm like, well, you're only three, you know, but, and, and you're just learning how to do this. And, and, and so I said, well, Hannah, and she wouldn't even let me talk. I started to say, well, Hannah, she goes, don't, I can't tie my shoe. I, can't, I don't know how to do this. This is so frustrating. I can't do this. And I started to explain to her while I'm here now. She wouldn't hear any of it. She's just focused on her shoe and she's yelling and she's all upset. She takes after Kim and she's all upset with this. <laughs> and she's focused on her shoe. And I just thought the, the drama is just overwhelming. And so not knowing what to do, I mean, I could have just dove in and tied her shoe for her. I just thought, i got to help this poor little thing. And, and so I looked at her, and, and I wasn't even trying to be a good dad. I just looked at her, and I asserted a little bit of authority and said, Hannah, stop. And she didn't stop. She's still looking at her shoe going, Dad, Dad, I can't. Not, dad. And finally I just said, Hannah, look at me. Look at me right now. And, and she slowly looked up at me. And I said, we can fix this. <laughs> this isn't that hard. I can tie your shoe, and as mom and I have been trying to, I can show you how to tie you a shoe so that you can do it yourself. We, we can deal with this. And before I even offered any solutions, before I tied her shoe, before I did anything, I didn't even touched her yet, the tears started to dry up. She started to breathe normally again. She eventually looked at me and said, okay, let's tie my shoe. It's a beautiful picture of what hope does. See, what God says to you and I is that when we're in the midst of something that's overwhelming to us, something that's draining all of our energy and joy, he says, simply look up. Get, get your eyes off that untied shoe. Let me tie my shoe right now, by the way. He, he, he says, get your eye off that untied shoe and look up, as we're going to see in a minute, to me and all my promises. And, and, and don't miss this, way before he even does anything, way before he even ties your shoe, way before he even comes through for you, like Hannah, you're going to start to calm down, the tears are going to start to abate, you're going to start to experience hope, because that's the way that God designed it for you and for me. Don't ever forget this, guys, the very nature of hope is the ability to look beyond your present circumstances. Some of you right now are overwhelmed financially. I'm not saying to ignore your messed up finances, but you have to look beyond that if you're ever going to have hope. Some of you are stuck in very sinful behavior patterns. Even at older in age, you're just, you've had sins with you that you've never been able to get over. And believe me, God still wants you to repent of these. I can promise you that, even at your age. But you're never going to do it if you don't look beyond even your sinful patterns. <laughs> Some of you here today, again, it says chapel because it's an older congregation, are just mired in health problems right now. I visit mom and dad uh, every quarter still, my parents. I fly into Cleveland and drive down to their little farming community and visit mom and dad. And, and mom and dad are 80 and 82 now. And I can tell you 75% of our conversation is about health problems. And, and my parents, like so many people, and I'm getting up to that age, it's just so easy, isn't it, to get mired and overly focused on our health. 
And just so you guys know, we live in a day and age today where it's much easier than any other time in the history of the world to focus unduly on your health. I was thinking about this on the plane trip I was on this week. I thought, you know, 100 years ago, when all you had was Doc Andrews in the community that would maybe take a couple of chickens, you know, for, for helping you through a health problem, that was how it was 100 years ago. Doc Andrews wouldn't hear 95% of the health complaints that we have today. Only in the last 100 years in the western part of the world do we have the kind of healthcare system where you can go and bother your doctor about every little thing. I, I do the same. I go to my doctor and I'll say, um, I think I have MS or something like that because I was reading WebMD and I have these symptoms and, you know, and he just laughs at me and, and I say, I know I'm being a pain, aren't I? And he said, well, you're actually easy compared to most of my patients. He said, they email me every day, every week with new symptoms. Some people bring folders of stuff in from research that they've done. See, what are we? We are a generation of people that are obsessed with our health and our aging. Again, I'm not saying it's not real. I talk with my parents about all that stuff. But the reality is, is that it's easy to become hopeless as your body declines. And as we're gonna see in a second here, God, that's when God wants you to have the most hope as you're getting closer to eternity. But for many of us, even though those of us who know Jesus, we start to lose hope. And part of it is we're just too mired in the here and now. We're too mired on the things right in front of us. And hope is the ability to look beyond your present circumstances. So lift your head, dry your eyes, and stop the incessant focusing on what's right in front of you. Now, biblical hope doesn't end there, however, because right now you're just staring off into nothingness, right? At least you're not focused on the untied shoe, but you're not focused on anywhere else. So what do you focus on? And this is where the paradox of hope becomes really rich. And that is that hope focuses on or sees that which is unseen. It sees that which is unseen. I've defined years I've defined for years hope as a paradox. Anybody know what a paradox is? Uh, if you looked up paradox in Webster's Dictionary, it would be defined as a seeming inconsistency. That's a paradox. In other words, at first glance, it seems completely inconsistent. It would be like saying my car is red and my car is blue at exactly the same time. Well, that can't be true. I mean, it's either red or blue, unless it's a multicolored car. Mine's not, it's red. And for me to call it blue would be inconsistent. But sometimes in life, there's a seeming inconsistency where it seems inconsistent, but upon further look, it's not. And I would submit to you that's hope, that hope, according to the Bible, sees what is unseen and therefore gets hope. What do I mean by that? First, look at 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says this. It says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, referring to heaven, eternity, we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I have also been fully known. So just latch on right now to this reality. There are times in life where you and I see something on the horizon that God has or God has promised, but we don't see it fully. We only see in part. But I would submit to you that's the seedbed of hope. If you want something that will rock your world even more, look at how Romans would put it in Romans 8.24. It says, for in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? So hope by its very nature, by its very definition, sees what is unseen. 
And again, this is where we depart from the world around us. The world around us would say, well, yeah, that's just wishful thinking then. Hope sees something that's not really completely seen, and you hope that it might come true. You have this vague expectation it might come true, but no, 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 no. That's not how the Bible uses this idea of hope. Hope does see what is unseen, but it's rock solid. Because what we do see in part comes from whom? God. And because it comes from God, we have surety behind it, even though we don't know all the details. In a very real way, this ability to see beyond your present circumstance latches onto, like Abraham did, the promises of God that he has given us, even though we have no idea how those promises are going to happen, and even though we don't see the results right now. And again, I've been doing this for years. Some of you guys are tempted right now in your mind. You wouldn't say this to me personally, but you're tempted to say right now, well, Jamie, you're talking silliness. You're talking nonsense. Where else in life do we do something like that? I'm glad you asked. I'd like to share with you a story of where else in life we do things like this. It's been a long time, but 30 years ago and about 70 pounds ago, I used to run marathon races. It's really true, honey. 30 years was when I ran my last marathon race. It was actually 1985, and I was just getting out of college, and I weighed about 140 pounds when Kim and I first got married. She feeds me way too much, but anyways, when I ran races back then, um, Marathon race is a different race than, than anything you'll ever do if you've ever tried them. Some of you have run them and you know what I mean. A marathon race is 26.2 miles. I don't even like to drive 26 miles today. So imagine running for 26.2 miles in a sub eight minute mile pace, which is what I could do back then. And, and when you run a race like that, they, they tell you that there's a point in your running where you hit what they call the wall. <laughs> when they first told me that, I was like, well, duh, of course you're gonna, I mean, like, it's exhausting. But uh, that's really, I'm saying it mildly. At about the 20 mile mark in a marathon race, you hit what they call the wall. And the wall is defined as a place of absolute physical and emotional depletion. You have nothing left at all, but you're only 20 miles into a 26 mile race. And so you have to keep going. And though runners, magazines and stuff will, will describe many things you can do to get through the wall, one of the things that helped me in the two marathon races that I ran to get through the wall was in my mind's eye to think about and picture the finish line. Because even though it was six miles away, I knew that if I could focus on it and think about it, that it just might help me, help me get through the wall. And it did and did. The only problem was that in both the races I ran, I'd never seen the finish line. Because the finish line was not where the starting line was, right? And I hadn't driven to where the finish line was. I guess it would have helped if I did, but I hadn't. And so there I am at the 20 mile mark, feeling absolutely depleted and exhausted. And I had to think about the finish line of which I have never seen. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? The ability to see to that which is unseen. But I knew something about finish lines. I started to picture in my mind eye that my guess is, is that at the finish line there would be a banner saying finish, <laughs> and there'd be a bunch of ropes that I'd jog through, and I started to picture that. And then I knew that there'd be a cheering crowd, because this was a large marathon. It wasn't the Boston Marathon, but it was the Cleveland Revco Marathon back then, and I, I knew that there'd be a large crowd. And my best friend Bill, who would be the best man at my wedding, told me he'd be at the finish line waiting for me. And I could picture that. I, I knew there'd be refreshment tables and bathrooms, and so I, I pictured that. And, and I knew that once I reached the finish line, I pictured myself stopping running, falling on the ground, 
and if needed, I'd have paramedics right there to help me. I actually would picture that. I thought, you know, you're not going to die. They'll probably be able to say, clear, and bring you back to life. And, and I was picturing that during this. And here's my point, guys. To the best of my knowledge, I could be sure that all these things would be there. Even though I'd never seen them, even though they might be different than how they were picturing them, I thought about these things, and as I did, hope welled up in my heart, and I finished my race. Now, could it be that that's what the Bible says to you and I when it comes to biblical hope? That when we need it the most, God says, look beyond your present circumstances to that and him which is unseen, because you've never seen Jesus. Don't you Ray read earlier, Hebrews 12 too. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You know the only problem with that? You've never seen him. Some of you have seen pictures of him, and they're wrong. Don't you love that? Like you go and you go to the National Gallery in Washington, D.C., you see these wonderful 15th century, you know, pictures of Jesus, and he's like a white European male. And, and you go, I, I'm, I'm not even that smart, but I know that there's a difference between a Middle Eastern guy and a white European Dutch master, and Jesus didn't look like a Dutch master. And so none of us have ever seen Jesus. And yet the Bible commands us. Now watch this. We're being very serious about this now. The Bible commands you to fix your eyes upon him. How can that be? Well, we're supposed to latch on to the promises of a savior, the promises of forgiveness, the promises of daily power, the promises of his presence, and the promises of eternal life given to us. And though we don't see all these things, because they're all on the, in the future, and some of them we've experienced, like forgiveness, but we, we can't actually see them, in a very real way you do. Hope sees the unseen. Uh, very specifically, we're, we're almost completely out of time here. Um, over the years, I thought about what is it that the Bible's really asking us to see that is unseen. And, and if you had to put it in two categories, and I think you'll like this, there would be these two categories. We're asked to believe that God is in the future of our life here, and that that makes a difference. Let me repeat that. God is in the future of our lives this side of heaven, and that makes a difference. And certainly, we're asked to hope for a better life on the other side. Give me a head nod, you all understand that. And, and again, some people push back on the, you know, better life now because they think I'm being a TV preacher when I say that, you know, because you watch TV preachers and they say, if you send me a lot of dough and you have enough faith, then you're going to get your blessing. And, and that's heresy, by the way. That, that, that promise is never given in the scriptures, but the scriptures do promise this. Though there is weeping in the night, there is joy in the morning. The scriptures say that as you hang in there with God, you ever read 2 Corinthians 1? On him we have set our hope and he will deliver us. Now again, yeah, you can clap at that, but, but what deliverance is, by the way, is up to God. That's where the TV preachers are wrong. They think they know what deliverance means, that you're going to get a lot of money from God, or that you're going to get your, 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 your tumor's going to be completely gone, or, you know, all your family's going to be saved. Don't get me wrong. God might do all that for you. That might be part of the deliverance. The only problem is when you read the scriptures, there's other ways God wants to deliver you too, Right? So in 2 Corinthians 1, when Paul the Apostle says, on him we have set our hope, and he will deliver us. Have you ever read forward to chapter 12? In chapter 12, Paul the Apostle is pleading with God to take away this thorn in the flesh, whatever it is. Everybody has guesses, but we don't know. He never says. But it's a problem in Paul's life. And do you remember what God said to him? My power is made perfect in your 
weakness. And Paul said, and he says, my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses because when I'm weak, then I got God's power on me to persevere. And so I am strong. See, sometimes, and some of you don't like this, but you need to repent of your dislike of this. Sometimes God just gives us himself as a form of deliverance. <laughs> his presence, his power, his purpose, his goodness. And though you say back then, but I want my miracle, God, his answer, or his question to you is, aren't I enough? <laughs> because he is our deliverance at the end of the day. And see, here's my point in all of this, if this is confusing to you. At the end of the day, God's promise still stands true, that when you're at your darkest hour, you look beyond your circumstances to him, and whatever way he chooses to do, he will come through for you. I've been doing this for 35 years, gang, and I'm telling you, it's true. He has never let me down. He's not always come through like I thought he was, but he has never let me down. And then if that's not enough for you, hope then also hopes for a better world on the other side. I mean, the scriptures are replete with example after example, promise after promise, that though some of you think that this is the good life, like you got your little good life bumper sticker on your car, that's almost heretical, because this ain't the good life. Even your best day here is a rainy day compared to eternity. Again, I love when people say, well, we don't know a lot about eternal life. Well, guys, oh, you're right. We don't know a lot about eternal life. But have you ever read the stuff that we do know? <laughs> In my house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And in those many rooms, no more tears, no more crying, no more weeping, no more decaying bodies, which tells you there's no health clubs in heaven because you're not going to need one. I mean, there's perfection. You'll know in full, as 1 Corinthians 13, 12 tells us, streets of gold, which is most likely an image, though some people take it literally. But even if it's an image there, that's a pretty doggone good image, isn't it? And the reality is, is that that's eternity for you and I. All the crud that we have to deal with here is not going to be on the other side. And here's what you guys need to know. We have it so good in Scottsdale, even though some of you are overwhelmed with your problems right now. There have been entire cultures in the history of the Western world that had it so bad, their only hope that got them through this world was eternity. I mean, read your history books. There have been entire peoples and generations who never had what we have, and yet they had smiles on their face and hope in their heart simply by saying, hey, 70, 80 years at best, and eternity is forever. And their whole hope has been built upon eternity. You and I get the chance to hope for a better life in this life and eternity. And we wonder, and I wonder then, why are we without hope? Because we have no reason to be without hope. We have so much hope. Last thought, one quote, and then we're done. Uh, Billy Graham has always been a hero to me. You know, some people don't like Billy Graham. He's not conservative enough or he's not, you know, whatever. I don't even, I don't even listen to it. Billy Graham, and I argue with you as a day is long about this, is a godly man who knows the Lord. He's served God faithfully. I think he's the 98 this year. I mean, he's old, like 98 years old. He's not preaching anymore. But you know what he did do recently? A couple years ago, he wrote, he wrote a, what probably is going to be his final book. And it was on heaven. And his whole point, I read the book, and the book was the fact that as he gets older, he wants to show other old people how to die with the hope of heaven in your heart. 
And the whole book is written about how he can't wait to see his Savior and be reunited, be united with Jesus, to be reunited with Ruth, his dear wife of, you know, 50, 60 years. And, and, and he just writes about how even in his old age, and he's real, I mean, he's got Parkinson's disease and not much of a lifestyle. He sits around his house in North Carolina just dreaming about eternity. And he prays for our nation. And he prays for you. And that's his contribution at the age of 98. And he writes in this book that he has hope in his heart and every day a smile on his face. See, that's what hope does to you. That when you really are able to look beyond your present circumstances to that or him which is unseen, I promise you, try it, you will have hope. Richard John Newhouse, who's also dead now with the Lord, once said it this way. He said, the times may be bad, but they are are the only times we are given. Remember, hope is still a Christian virtue and despair is a mortal sin. (laughs) And he's right. That might be too hard-hitting for some of you, but it's true. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, the book of Hebrews said, but of those who persevere to the very saving of our souls and we have hope. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the great hope that we have that all centers around Jesus Christ. Thank you that he has given us reason to hope, that he's given us reason in the Holy Spirit to look beyond all the stuff we're dealing with now to him, the author and perfecter of our faith. And God, as we do that, we do know that though there may be weeping in the night, there is joy in the morning. That as we hang in there with you, you'll do something to give us joy and hope. And that Lord, Even in the midst of difficult times, we have eternity and we can't wait. We can't wait. So God, I pray for anybody here that's struggling with despair and discouragement as I have in my life. God, I pray that today you'd give them not just reason to hope, but hope itself. And may they have joy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And we all say together.